Good morning, Journey Church. How are y'all doing? You know, it's, uh, I got a chance to, to share something with you. I was going to share something with you about extending grace, a story from, from my childhood, and sometimes God just gives you a much better uh, sermon illustration. Uh, last night, actually, at about four in the morning, I got a phone call, and uh, apparently the alarm was going off at the church. And uh, so when the door is open and they find that, they won't close it and uh, they won't leave. The police won't until somebody comes. And so I got in my car and I drove, you know, 10 miles in uh, to the church. And, and it turns out that, uh, you know, the youth had a program here last night and uh, they had left a, a door ajar. And so today I get to uh, tell you how I'm going to extend grace to Zach this morning. <laughs> Now, I, I didn't really bring that up just to kind of pick on him. I kind of did, but, but uh, really I wanted to brag on him because uh, over the weekend they had a fall retreat. Yeah. And so there were, there were more than 100, I understand, uh, middle schoolers and high schoolers here last night with the bonfire that were here all weekend, and I know that they learned so much about Jesus. And so I am so proud of Zach. I am so happy that he and Allie are here with us. And so uh, that was an awesome event. And so I'm glad to get to share that with you tonight. And a lot of those kids are sitting right here with us today because that's a part of their retreat. And I hope that becomes a tradition that they would come and join us every Sunday. And uh, so today we're going to be talking about extending grace. Last week, Randy talked about cheapening grace. And uh, what that means is basically, if, if we just take grace as kind of a license to sin, then basically that cheapens grace. Actually, as Randy explains, explained last week, that's really not grace at all. And so he talked about cheap grace last week. I'm going to talk about extending grace. And he said something. He said this week's sermon was going to be easy. And I don't know where he got that. This is, this is going to be tough because extending grace sometimes, I think, is hard for us. And so God extends grace to us, even though we don't deserve it. He extends grace to us freely, and then he tells us to extend grace to others. And so if you want to really know what grace, extending grace looks like, you can look at the life of Jesus Christ, because Jesus extended grace so perfectly. And there are so many good examples of that when you look at the Scripture, when you look at the Gospels that talk about his life. John said Jesus was full of grace and truth. And again, that is so evident when we look at how he offered that to so many people. And one of the most clear examples, one of my favorite examples, is uh, some verses that we're going to be looking at today, and that is the woman that was caught in adultery. And so if you want to follow along with that, it's uh, John chapter 8, verses 3 through 11. Let's dig right into it. It says, Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. Teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? They asked this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. Jesus stooped down and he started writing in the ground with his finger. When they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and said to them, The one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again, and he continued writing in the ground. When they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he was left with the woman in the center. When Jesus stood up, he said to her, Woman, where are they? 
has, has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus said. Now go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. Now, if you read in the Bible about this story, kind of ahead of time, it tells you that this happened at the beginning of what was called the Feast of the Tabernacles. It's also known as the Feast of the Booths or the Feast of the Ingatherings. And so this is a Jewish festival still practiced today. And uh, it, it happens in the seventh month of the, of the Hebrew calendar, five days after the Day of Atonement, after the harvest is in. And so what's required of people who are celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles is they're supposed to build a booth, or they're supposed to build a tabernacle. It's supposed to be made out of vines and branches. The, the ceiling is supposed to be translucent so they can see the night sky. And they're supposed to live in that booth for seven days during this festival. It begins on a Sabbath and ends on a Sabbath. And so the interesting thing, well, first of all, the meaning of it, what it was supposed to mean, what it, te- what it, what it reminds the Jews of, is the time that their ancestors were brought into the wilderness when Jesus, or I'm sorry, when God delivered them from Egypt. And so it's a reminder of God's deliverance. And so when I was preparing for this, I kind of stumbled across something that kind of blew me away. I want to tell you that today, October the 13th, the day that we're talking about this story, is the beginning of Sukkot, or the beginning of the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, I would like to tell you that last year when we were planning out the sermon series, that we planned it in great detail right to this moment where we could preach about this on this very day, and I would be lying to you if I told you that. It's God's timing, not ours, but I just thought that was kind of cool. It kind of blew me away. And so here we have this story where the Pharisees dragged a woman into the temple courts. Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, probably, I would think, under the Solomon's porch on the temple mount. And so these Pharisees dragged this woman in, and they wanted Jesus to weigh in on whether she should be executed or not. But it was a trap. And the reason it was a trap was because the Jews could not execute anybody unless they had approval from the Romans. And so if Jesus would have said, go ahead and stone her, then he could have been uh, brought under the, um, under the punishment of the Romans. He could have been arrested. He could have been even executed for such a thing. And if he would have said, uh, spare her, you know, don't stone her, then he could have been accused of violating Mosaic law, and he could have come under punishment from the Sanhedrin or the Jewish leaders. And so these guys thought they had him uh, in the perfect trap. They thought they had him in a no-win situation. And so say they demanded, they kept pressing Jesus to, to weigh in on stoning this woman or not. And so his response was he stooped down, And he started writing in the dust with his finger. Big mystery here. Because the Bible doesn't tell us what Jesus was writing. But a lot of people speculate. Some people think that maybe he was writing the names of the guys that were holding the stones ready to kill this woman. Some people think that maybe they were writing the names of their mistresses of some people that they were probably committing adultery with themselves. All speculation. But I think that maybe there might be a little bit more of a simplistic meaning If we look at the book of Exodus, and this is when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. It says, when he was finished speaking, when God was finished speaking with Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him two tablets of testimony, stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God. God wrote the laws with his finger that exposed 
the sins of the Israelites. Maybe Jesus was doing the same thing. Maybe Jesus was writing the laws in the dirt with his finger, much the same way that God wrote the laws on the tablets with his finger. Maybe he was exposing their sin to remind them that the law convicted them as much as anybody else. That's my speculation, but I think that's kind of an interesting parallel to think about. There's a really striking thought in this story for me. It is completely striking to me the total lack of compassion that these Pharisees had for this woman. Total depraved action. They had no concern for her at all. Apparently, they had caught her in the act of committing adultery. So some people believe that maybe she was standing there half-dressed. Some people believe that she was bound. And I can't say that for sure, but one thing I think I can say for sure is she was standing there ashamed and terrified. And the Pharisees didn't care. They could care less. You know, for it to be adultery, it takes two people. And so if it was adultery, the woman would have had to have been betrothed to someone or married to someone. Or the guy would have had to have been committed to someone or married to someone. But either way, the guy should have been in just as big a pickle as she was. But he wasn't anywhere to be found. See, it wasn't about the Pharisees seeking justice at all. They didn't care about justice. They had no compassion or concern about this woman. They didn't care about the sins of this guy. They really didn't care if this woman sinned. They didn't care if she lived or died. All they were interested in was trapping Jesus. They didn't see her as a daughter of God. They saw her as an expendable pawn that they could use to get their way with Jesus. I'm just really struck by their lack of compassion. The Pharisees are supposed to be teachers and leaders of the people, which included this woman, but they didn't care. So these guys thought they really had Jesus. They thought they had him. They thought they'd ask him a question that's impossible for him to answer without incriminating himself. I bet they thought they were pretty clever, but Jesus turned the tables on them. He said to them, any of you guys who are sinless, you can chuck the first rock. And it says they started to fade away one by one, starting with the older ones. I don't know, that's a mystery to me too. Why, why is it important to say that the older ones were the first ones to go? Maybe it's because they knew better than most. Maybe the younger guys were just coming along for the ride, following their lead. But these guys knew better more than most. Maybe, I don't know, it's something again to speculate. But after they were all gone, Jesus turned to the woman and he said, was anybody left here to condemn you? And she said, he, she said, no one. And so Jesus extended grace to her when he said, nor do I condemn you. See, folks, that's unconditional grace. By all accounts, she was guilty of what they had accused her of doing. By all accounts, she deserved punishment based on God's law. But Jesus extended grace to her and he extended it to her and he offered it to her freely. And I want to stop for a second and just kind of take an aside. I think there may be people, I think there's always people in the crowd that are probably thinking, even if it's in the back of your mind, my sins are too big. They're too big. It's hopeless for me. God can't forgive the things that I've done. And if that's you today and you think that, uh, you're missing the point. You're missing the point because we've all missed the mark. Paul said in the book of Romans, 
But now, apart from the law, God's righteousness has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. That is God's righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. God doesn't pick and choose who to extend grace to. He doesn't favor those with lesser sins over those of the worst of us. Sin is sin. Even the least of sin can create disaster for us. And there's nothing that we can do to earn the the grace of God, and there's no sin that's too big for God to forgive. And so if you're sitting here thinking, my sins are too big, my advice to you is accept God's grace with a repentant heart and move on. Because God's grace is total. Last week, Randy talked about the balance between grace and truth and how Jesus lived in that perfect balance. And he mentioned um, a demonstration about a rubber band, and I want to kind of follow up on that a little bit. This is not something that we created. It was a, it was a presentation by a guy by the name of Caleb Kaltenbach. I'll talk a little bit more about him in a minute. But he talked about grace and truth and how truth alone is kind of like this rubber band. It's kind of flimsy. It's kind of floppy. There's no power to this. And grace alone looks much the same. It's flimsy. But when you live in the tension of grace and truth, that's where power can come. And that's where Jesus lived, was in the tension between grace and truth. And so did Jesus ever cheapen grace? I would have to tell you that the answer is no. In this very story about the the adulteress, Jesus didn't abandon the truth. He didn't condone her sin. He offered grace, but he followed it with a simple instruction, now go and sin no more. That is Jesus living in the tension of grace and truth. And because Jesus did that, because he lived in that tension, that woman came to faith right then and there. How do I know that? Look at the only words recorded that this woman spoke. When Jesus said, who's left to condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. She called Jesus Lord. She called Jesus Lord. Translated, that is Messiah. She accepted Jesus as God's son. And at that very moment, she came to faith. And it was by grace that she was saved. And it's by the grace of Jesus Christ that we stand before him right now, forgiven. Because Jesus extended grace, and he never discarded of the truth. Jesus always extended grace to people that we might think didn't deserve it. I mean, that's what we see. We see the marginalized being extended grace by Jesus. And I believe he was doing that to set an example for us. Jesus wants us to extend grace to everyone. Even the people that we don't think have earned it. Even the people that we don't much care for. Even the people that disagree with a lot of things that we agree with. It's kind of, it's kind of prevalent in our culture right now that if you agree, if you think certain things, there's another side that has to hate you for it. And this, that kind of came to full circle this last week. I'm sure you guys heard the story about Ellen DeGeneres and how she came under Twitter fire because a picture of her surfaced uh, setting with former President George W. Bush at a Cowboys football game. 
And the only thing that sounds offensive to me is they allowed a Packers fan into the Dallas Cowboys owner's box. But that's another story. So, so people responded. They were extremely critical of her. That how she could sit next to someone who has opposing views of her own. And I've got to tell you, I really love her response to her critics. She said, here's the thing. I'm friends with George Bush. In fact, I'm friends with a lot of people who don't share the same beliefs that I have. We're all different, and I think we've forgotten that it's okay that we're all different. And I think she's right. I think in our world today, we've forgotten that it's okay to be friends with people we don't agree with. Folks, Jesus commands us to love, and I'm afraid, I'm a little bit afraid, that a lot of Christians are forgetting that very fact, that we're supposed to love people that we're supposed to be leading the effort in extending grace to other people. Jesus commands us to love. In the book of Matthew, chapter 22, you've heard this over and over. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced, that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they came together, and one of them, an expert in the law, asked a question to test him. Teacher, which command of the law is the greatest? And Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and the most important command, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Another one of my favorite verses is the Apostle Paul in the book of Colossians, where he said, Therefore God's chosen ones, holy and loved, put on heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, accepting one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. I wanted to tell you a little, bit of, uh, a little bit about some experience where I've learned about extending grace. Unless you've been living under a rock in Versailles, you probably know that a, that a fairness ordinance was recently passed in the city. And that is an ordinance, it's a law that extends protect, protections to the LBGTQ plus community. And this is the second time that this has come up in our, our city. The first time was about five years ago, and it failed. It didn't pass. And I spoke in public five years ago, and I spoke solely on God's truth. I was living here just in truth alone, to be honest with you. As a matter of fact, I think as tantamount to me rolling up the Bible and hitting it over the head of people, some of them who didn't even know Jesus. And so I think that was a mistake. I offered no grace at all. I remember five years ago the ugliness and the division that was so prevalent in the crowd. It was really us and them. It, it, grace was null and void, and it was, it was null and void from both sides of the aisle. But when the surface issued again, or the, the, surface, the issue surfaced again, I prayed about what my involvement needed to be. I prayed to God, should I be involved in this or should I sit on the sidelines? And I read and I studied and I talked to people and I believe God's call to me was, yes, you need to speak, but how about you lead off with the gospel? And he called me to address the other side and to do so in love. And so that's what I set out to do. So back in August... I spoke in public for about 17 minutes along with uh, several other people, about 25 other people. 
But I spoke for 17 minutes and I offered God's truth and offered his gift of salvation that was extended to everybody. And I stated to the crowd that it wasn't my job to change their orientation or to change their mind. I expressed my love, uh, my, my love that I should have for my neighbor, and I told them that I would love them as I love myself. And I offered that we can disagree with one another, and we can still sit at the table of fellowship together. Five years ago, back to kind of the, the, the ugly event, after that vote, the room emptied out. And then an argument broke out in the parking lot between two people, and it was nasty. It was a verbal argument. It was not good. Everyone left there as polarized as they showed up. Nothing was really resolved or solved. But this last time, back in August, I believe was a little different. There's still some folks on both sides that think maybe my response was wrong, and that's okay. But after that night in August when I spoke, five people who five years ago would have had nothing to do with me, crossed the aisle, and we had conversations of kindness. And friendships right now are forming with people that don't agree with each other just because I dared to try to live in that tension between grace and truth. That's God, not me. God convicted me to that. Some of those people may never change their mind, some of them will. Some didn't respond real well at first. Actually, that was pretty uncomfortable. It really was. Uh, some are still confused by my approach. And I'll be honest with you, I've been a little bit of a man without a country. Because people on this side didn't like what I said. People on this side didn't like what I said. That kind of makes me feel like that's where I needed to be. I think that's what this looks like. That's the power of Christ. You know, I don't know if, like I said, if those opinions will change. I don't know if some of those folks will come to Christ. But honestly, that's not on me. But what I do know is that I'll stand a whole lot better chance of introducing them to the real Jesus if I enter into a relationship of friendship with them. And God exemplifies that in his life for us. These folks aren't our enemy. They're people that God created. He created in their image just like he did us. Now, I've got to admit, it's awful easy to extend grace to people that think like me and look like me. That's really not a problem. And so I really don't think I need to preach a whole lot on telling you to extend grace to other people that you know and you like because I think it's pretty simple. But I've got to admit, it's awful hard sometimes to do it for people that I don't care for. The name of this sermon series has been called Getting Grace Right. And so I think that's an apt name because I think there's a huge price for getting it wrong. I talked to you about Caleb Kaltenbach, this, this, this demonstration. He's a guy that wrote a book called Messy Grace. He grew up with a lesbian mother and her partner. From a young age, his, both of his parents were actually uh, living a homosexual lifestyle. And he tells the story of going to gay pride parades when he was an early teenager with his mother and her partner, Vera. And he said at the end of one particular parade, there was a group of people claiming to be Christians who were holding up signs that said, God hates gay people. It was a little worse than that. They were scolding them and yelling at them, and they even threw water and urine on them. 
And Caleb talks about how he looked at his mom and said, why are they doing this? And her response was, Caleb, it's because they're Christians, and Christians hate gay people. And he said, growing up, he hated Christians. He couldn't understand it. But then something happened to Caleb. Because as a teenager, it's too long of a story for me to share now, because I'm running out of time anyway. But as a teenager, he grew up, and he, he tried to disprove Christianity. He tried to antagonize Christians And he ended up meeting some people that extended grace to him. They knew his situation. They knew who his parents were, but they were Christians who extended grace to him anyway. And Caleb came to Christ. Caleb is now a pastor in California. Caleb's mother, later on, came to Christ and followed followed Caleb to where he was preaching. But Caleb's uh, mother's partner, Vera, she never made that confession. Caleb grew up with Vera, grew up in the home with her, and he loved her. And on her deathbed, he had a chance to preach the gospel to her one last time. And his prayer was that she would answer that call. But some of her last words to Caleb were, Caleb, I want nothing to do with your Jesus. And she died. Now, I don't know. She, she may have come to faith in that last utterance. We don't know. And I will tell you this. God can save anybody he wants at any time. And so I pray that, that Vera is in heaven. Uh, but folks, I'm worried that people like Vera might be in hell. Because Christians have refused to extend grace. In my opinion, people like Vera, they become inoculated against the gospel by people who see them as the enemy. People that think differently, that look differently than us, folks, they're not the enemy. They are people created in the image of God. Many may never accept Christ, but some of them will. Some of them have. There's tons of stories about people who have turned away from lifestyles that you would never believe, who are people of God. They're not the enemy. They're candidates for God's salvation. We have to extend grace. We need to learn to extend grace to people that we don't agree with, to people that we don't deem worthy. We've got to extend grace to people because God extended grace to us. We have to love them like our neighbor. Just a moment. We're going to go to an ordinance here of communion. And this is the perfect ordinance that Jesus established for us for people who have accepted him, uh, for Christians, for believers. And this is a time where we, we take of just a simple piece of bread and a, and a simple cup of juice. And it's a time that he gave to us to remember his sacrifice and to remember the grace that he extended to us. Jesus died on the cross for us so that we would have an eternity. He made that final sacrifice for us. That was the ultimate extension of grace. And so this is a special moment where we can stop and celebrate that with Him. This is also a time when we can look inward and we can, we can judge ourselves. We can think about the grace that we have and or have extended to other people. And so I pray that that's what this will be in this moment, is that we'll stop and we'll look up and we look at Jesus and we'll understand that He is our Savior.
and to understand that He calls us to greater things. He calls us to love. And so He calls us to live in that, that tension between grace and truth, never giving up one for the other. Would you all pray with me as we enter into this time, as we go around the Lord's table? Our Heavenly Father, Jesus, we thank you for today. God, we thank you for your gift. We thank you for this grace. I don't understand it, God. I, I don't understand how you can do that, how you can offer something to us that we don't deserve. But God, I'm so glad that you do. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your wisdom. I thank you for the example that you set for us as you lived your life here on earth. God, we love you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.